do you think there's anything worthwhile in this book? I get the impression that you all just like you think it's just like kind of trash and there's nothing there. One of the things one of the things that a lot of this old genre fiction is interesting for is watching the places where the structure of the story and the sort of extra story stuff that's added into it clash against each other. These very interesting cracks start forming uh, and separations. And if you look and if you dig, you can kind of pull them apart and see some much more interesting potential going on there. Which is exactly what makes the, where the film is successful is exactly what makes it successful is it takes those moments that ball doesn't, give us a window into and and adds to it the hot summer nights of the south awaken in people passions that they didn't realize were there the housewife dreams of adultery the faithful husband imagines killing his wife and running away to the big city. Sometimes things happen on these hot summer nights that can't be accounted for. Today on the Projectionist Lending Library, we'll consider one of these events, John Ball's novel In the Heat of the Night and the movie based on it. Enjoy. Welcome to the Projectionist Lending Library. I'm Nathaniel Booth. Hi, I'm Eric Klein. And we're here today with a special guest. Will, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Will Murray. I'm an assistant professor at Tennessee Wesleyan University and study most of my research is on post-1960s American literature and film. And we're today talking about In the Heat of the Night, the 1960. 465 novel and the 1967 Norman Jewison film based on it. Well, you you kind of brought this one to our attention. So why don't you tell us why you think it's interesting and give us a little bit of background on it and on the author, John Ball. Yeah, well, I, there are a lot of reasons. I kind of came to this backwards through the television show um, and then the movie and then the the novels, the the backwards um, to how they were produced. But my research looks at constructions of whiteness and the way that race Mm -hmm. is manufactured and specifically the way that the South is used as a way of constructing or shifting blame or talking about race in a way that allows the audience to feel relieved of that guilt. Um, And so this Mm -hmm for a number of reasons. Ball is a man of many interests um, <laughs> and some of that shows up in the novel. And in some ways, it's a very straightforward detective fiction novel about you know the backward South. What I found to be interesting was the way that it was changed for the film, particularly the way that Sidney Portier does things in that film that I don't think necessarily the, the people creating the film or at least the scriptwriters, certainly not John Ball, meant for it. And then 
the television show is its own thing as well. But when did the TV show like come out? I know nothing about the TV show. So could you just give like a preview of, of that? Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm blanking on the, the exact dates, but it's a 80s. 1988. 88. So it's a 80s. late 80s. That's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is vastly different. Um, I mean, it yeah. is. It's got the same characters. It's got Virgil Tibbs, and it's got Chief Gillespie. Sam um, Wood. I don't think if it does have Sam Wood, he's not the same person. And the the first episode is basically an episode teaching the audience that things in Mississippi are different now, and that it's now black people's job to get over their own racism, basically. Oh. And so Gillespie is sort of post racial. And Tibbs comes in with a chip on his shoulder and it suspects this white police officer named Bubba of being the criminal and Bubba ends up saving his life. And Gillespie's like, see, you know, I used to hate black people, but then a black person saved my life way back in the 60s. And so now I know we're all the same. And Tibbs just kind of nods his head and it's like, you know, wise people. And then the, the closing scene, we hear this hammering and Gillespie comes, the police chief comes out of his office and sees Tibbs, the black police officer, hanging a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. up. Mm-hmm. And Gillespie gets mad, not because he cares about the portrait being put up, but because he puts it, this is still Mississippi. And they're arguing back and forth. And we notice Robert E. Lee's picture over Gillespie's shoulder and Martin Luther King Jr.'s picture over Tibbs's shoulder. And it basically ends with Tibbs saying, look, you have your heroes. I have my heroes. That's the way things should be. And they sort of say, like, yeah, that's true. Of course, like ignoring the fact that there's been a moral equivalency drawn between a guy who, you know, was a general for a would be slave nation and Martin Luther King Jr. Is it like a, well, we agree to disagree. Yeah. And we can still be friends. And the right way for this to end is for both of these sort of us both to have our heroes and recognize and it, mm-hmm. without getting too nerdy i write a lot about how this ties into sort of like postmodern disconnecting the signifier from the signified and the way that mm-hmm. it, it reconceptualized the south as a series of brands none of which indicate anything about the person and so mm-hmm. gillespie is the right kind of white person so he can associate the confederacy in the right kind of way Whereas other characters mm-hmm. trying to re-enliven different brands of Confederacy are condemned by the TV show. Um, but it's very mm-hmm. much fits into that 1980s, 1990s free-for-all. Yeah, we, and we're imagining like we're post-racial, blah, 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 blah. And to be clear, yeah. uh, because this is sort of implicit in Will's comments, but I think we should make this explicit. The TV show is a sequel series to the movie. So like the events of the movie are imagined as taking place some years before the TV series. I, and I so think that it's, I, you know, that's a good question. Of when, is I don't think it's set in the 60s, but it's like the first time they're meeting. So. It's not set in the 60s. It's not no. set in the 60s. They change the timeline. They mm-hmm. say, oh, a few years ago. And by a few years ago, they mean like 20 something years ago. No, they changed the timeline, but mm-hmm. the, the series is conceived of as a sequel to the, as like after this the is events my of reading what happened. On, after the events of what happened, they're sort of implicitly in the background. It's a legacy sequel <laughs> to, uh, to, and it ignores the three Virgil Tibbs movies, I think. But it, it certainly yeah. sets up the like out of town police detective. Yeah. Yeah, coming yeah, yeah. in and integrating mm-hmm. the police force. 
is the driving you know, tension. But the, the creator of the TV show basically says we live in a post-racial present now. It would be unfair to show Mississippi that way because mm-hmm. like all that race stuff's behind us. And so now yeah, the tension is not over race. It's over police styles. Tibbs is by the book. Does that, Gillespie isn't. Does that continue through the entire series? Because I know they had like a turnover of showrunners uh, between seasons one and two and two and three as Carol O'Connor start slowly like took more control over the yeah, show. It pretty much does. I mean, it, it okay. the Gillespie as Carol kind of gets more control of it becomes in, in the first episode, he's still got some racial hangups. Like he's not entirely mm-hmm. over it, but mostly it's played through this. Like, this is the way things are done here and you're bucking the system. Mm-hmm. And I don't want you to do that. As the episode continues, he becomes increasingly liberal okay. and increasingly sort of like makes it ex- more explicit that he is not racist at all. There's also interesting stuff going on with like the fact that he is Archie Bunker. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, the same actor who plays Archie Bunker moved to the South and it's, he's kind of borrowing at least in the first part of the TV series, that sort of like good racist trope. And then he plays in Archie Bunker where it's like a harmless racism where his version of racism Mm -hmm. is one that's not the bad version. And there are the bad versions on the show, but his is more just like a misguided, quote unquote, benign version. Well, I think they do that in the book, too. Right. Mm -hmm. And to bring it back to the book, if the TV show kind of represents this idea of being like a post racial America because it's late 80s, early 90s. And we were incredibly patriotically naive at that time. Oh, the Berlin Wall fell. The Soviet Union fell. Like, we won. Like, mm. But when y'all read the book, I thought it really represented, it represented race in the 60s in the way that Will is talking about the show represents, like, race in the late 80s. It, it's doing, like, the, the old trope of the it's almost comical in the ways that it, it goes out of the way in the book and the movie do this to a certain extent out of the way of sort of like trying to locate racism in a specific place and like the the endicots in the book i'm like they all mixed up in the movie but you know they're northern and so they're, right. they're yep. clearly not going to be racist right and yep. then yep. when tibbs talks about california he's like there's this magical land where people don't see race and everyone's the same and it's called california um <laughs> and it's again it's locating race in a very specific space well right that's what i mean like the way that you're talking about the tv show presents this sort of like ideal version of race relations in the late 80s. Yeah, the biggest difference, I think, is that the by the time we get to the TV show, even the South is off the hook. Yeah, there's a few sort of like crazy racist people, but really the, the bad people in the town are, are running a pornography ring. And that's why like the woman was murdered. And it's it's sort of set up as to be like you expect it all to be about race because it's set in Sparta, Mississippi. You know, you've seen or at least heard of the movie. So you expect to come into this TV show and be confronted with America's racial ills because you're in Mississippi. And it's there, but it's really sort of like off camera, tertiary to the the primary drivers, whereas the film and the book are are very much, I mean, race is the central issue, even while they're making excuses for like 99% of the books and movies audience as being like, you're not one of these people. The book to me was really interesting for a couple of reasons. One was, and I was asking this before we officially started recording, it's very clearly written by a white dude. 
something about the the jokey manner of the way that a lot of the racism is portrayed, but also the way that he attacks racism is very much a sort of moderate, white, liberal of mid-century approach. Virgil Tibbs, who we'll talk about more in a minute, because I think I actually I like Tibbs. I like him in the book and I like him in the movie, but for different reasons. But Virgil Tibbs is very carefully decoupled from any sort of racial signifiers. Like when the cop first encounters him, he goes through all the ways that Tibbs doesn't look like a Mississippi or it's not Mississippi in the book. He's South Carolina or he's in the Carolinas all the ways that he does not look like a local African-American man. And a lot of attention is paid to the fact that he doesn't have a big butt, which, yes. <laughs> which is really an interesting point. So from the beginning, when Tibbs is presented, he's not your ordinary black guy. He's almost white. And throughout the novel, the author, John Ball, is constantly calling attention to all these stereotypes about black people in the South from that time. But Tibbs wasn't like that. Tibbs is different. And well, so the way that Tibbs become is able to overcome the racism of the white cops around him is by being essentially white. Can I, right? can I read a couple of those lines, Nathaniel? This is from Sam's point of view, Sam Wood's point mm -hmm. of view. His nose was almost like a white man's and the line of his mouth was straight and disciplined in the same chapter. He did not have the big butt Sam was accustomed to on many Negroes. Yeah. That yeah, it's, it it's, does it's put so it strange. in. It, it is strange, but it like it, it does put it in the body. Both. That is something that I think unites both the book and the movie is their emphasis mm -hmm. on embodiment. Yeah, but different ways because in different movie, ways. And we want to talk about this because the movie focuses on his hands so much. Like fingering, not fingering corpses, um, <laughs> handling corpses, probing. handling evidence, <laughs> probing. Co well, let's talk about the book. Like, like, like we need to yeah. just tell listeners what this let's book do a is. Quick, yeah, let's yeah. talk through it. Yeah, let's talk through it. So it's published in 1964 by John Ball, who I don't know much about except for y'all said he's white. Is he a Southern writer? Nope. No. No. Connected okay. to New York. I okay. Think. So he's a New York writer. Our main protagonist, Virgil, Vir, Virgil Tubbs. Virgil Tibbs. Virgil Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs. Happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Namely, namely what happens is a body is discovered, uh, and the, in this little city and the cops mobilize to try to find someone. One of the cops goes to a train station, goes into the, segregated area of the train station and he discovers this stranger sitting there a black man and he arrests him and takes him in without looking at his id um mm -hmm. on the grounds that he's got too much money for a black person to have they get him to the office and discover that he is in fact virgil tibbs from pasadena california mm -hmm. and he's a police inspector he's a detective specifically a homicide detective specifically a homicide detective. And so he gets impressed into investigating this murder. The same officer that brought him in had found the body mm -hmm. of Mr. Yeah. Officer Sam Wood. Who's a much bigger, I mean, he's, 
he's a weird character because when I read it, I thought he was going to be a one-off character. And then he keeps showing up and having like emotional moments. He's got one of the weirdest scenes in the book, which is later he's accused of being the killer. He's arrested. Mm-hmm. And then the daughter of the victim comes in and says, I have an infallible lie detector test. And she puts her arms around him, stares into his eyes and says, tell me you didn't murder my father. <laughs> and Sam Wood's fascinating in the sense that I think he is the persuadable white southerner that people yeah. see as like the one that can be. And he's the one that performs like the regional romance, which is a, another um, kind of staple of the southern northern people in the north writing about the south people of the south writing about the north is this idea what is the regional romance it's just basically where someone from the north and the south get together and get married and it resent you know it but in this case yeah you have the like police officer which is that i mean that middle class which is one of the things in the book is obsessed with class mm-hmm. i was gonna say that one thing i noticed was the book seemed to be much more concerned with class than the movie Mm-hmm. Um, the book has a lot of attention to class as well as race. Yeah, and it's it's yeah, telling well, that this is what's going to save the South and the the book, but like what gets murdered in the book as an um someone bringing art or music to the South, mm-hmm. and like, you know it's going to bring this sort of like cultural refinement. And in the movie, it's it's very much um, it's a factory, a factory, uh, right? Economic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that and was also an interesting change. It, yeah, and and also one of the things that I noticed about the book, and this probably has more to do with just like description than anything else. There was a lot of attention to the Purdies and to Ralph mm-hmm. being like lower class, and therefore intellectually uh, behind. I think mm-hmm. he, in fact, says, I don't know. The, the R word, can I say retarded? Like, we can cut that if we can, but he, and that's Tibbs that says yeah. it. You know, like, that's yeah, coming yeah. from, like, the yeah. hero of it. He's just like, this is an obviously retarded man. And, like, mm-hmm. there's this equation of, like, poor white Southerner mm-hmm. with being, like, backwards. There's even insinuations, at least, I don't know if y'all read, the, read it this way, at least when, like, Dolores Purdy and and what's her? Do you remember what her dad's name is? Mister Purdy. I'm not. Is sure. it just Mister Purdy? Mm-hmm. Like there were at least even and and maybe this was through like the sort of limited narration of like oh damn is this is this like incestuous? And it, oh, I got it, that vibe. Definitely yeah, like it's it, it plays on at the same time that it's trying to very weakly do this racial equality it also really highlights some problematic fucking things and i i thought one of them was at least in the book the way that it treats like so-called white trash or like right yeah Yeah, i mean it's very classical in its sense of locating racism as the problem of poor white people I mean, mm-hmm. in that, in the Endicott study at the end where they're like, and yeah. so it, it's, again, it's very invested in this idea of class and, mm-hmm. and then, and then like the people like Sam Wood that aren't going to be the aristocracy, but are presumably this sort of like persuadable middle class that could, you yeah. know, if they just met a black person or if they just talked to somebody or just rode in a car together for a little while, 
they would all of a sudden kind of become, you know, completely post-racial, which is a lot of the politics of the 1960s. Yeah, that's why that's why I said it sounds like very much like a sort of moderate liberal trying to write about race in the 60s, because the you get a lot. Virgil Tibbs gets a couple of point of view scenes, but not that much. You get a lot from Sam's perspective, and it's always stuff like he hated to admit it, but he admired this man, Virgil Tibbs. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so like he's unwillingly coming to like him and trust him and a big part of it. To be honest, a big part of it is because in the novel, Tibbs is incredibly conciliatory. He goes along with everything. They'll call him names. They'll reject him. They'll like, they'll talk down to him and he just rolls with it until a couple of sequences right at the end of the book where he kind of lets things go. And then he says, I'm sorry. I let my rage get the better of me there for a moment. <laughs> the, the, the key thing, like, like the, the sort of signifying moment is the famous line. They call me Mr. Tibbs, which everyone knows. It's, it's one of the most like the AFI's 100 most well-known lines in cinema. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit it. that I, I, I knew it first from the Lion King. That's Pumbaa. in the Lion King? Yeah. So, um, when the height, it's like when Timon and Pumbaa and Simba come back to fight Scar and the hyenas, they have Timon and Pumbaa be decoys and they do like a little Hawaiian dance thing. And then the hyenas like chase after them and they're, cause they're hyenas, they're like laughing at. Pumba, who's the warthog, and um, as he gets ready to like charge against him, he's like, "They call me Mister Pig," and then he charges at the hyenas. Oh, I get, remember that. Yeah. You know? yeah. So that was like I knew that. <laughs> okay. Before, so so I knew that before I knew uh, <laughs> this one. I'm embarrassed to say. Okay. So I'm not embarrassed to okay, say, but so. I, I'll say. <laughs> All right, but my point is, if you in the movie. And and the way it, this line sort of exists in popular consciousness, even in The Lion King, yes. is it's this like proud statement of rage at being talked to in this way. In the book, it is delivered, the line is delivered in such a cool, understated manner that it's still like it's still intended as a kind of rebuke, but it's not anger. It's not rage. It's just like, oh, here i'm a i'm a witty detective and i'm gonna call you out on this but i'm not gonna make you uncomfortable when i do it they're it's like kind of well what do you comment. what did they call you in pasadena they call me yeah, mr tibbs they call me mr tibbs like which, it's very yeah the line does have yeah it's got power still but it's a different it's delivered in a different way and that's the entire book again i like virgil tibbs in the book but he is much more willing to go along with the racist cops around him in a way that I think would make white moderate liberals of the 1960s very comfortable. Yeah, I had a, a, a friend of then called it like the dances with the wolves syndrome, which is this mm. white fantasy of people of color who are incredibly tolerant and just cannot wait to be included. That it only takes mm-hmm. like the smallest sort of effort, you know, by the way people for racial harmony to ensue. And the book very much fits mm-hmm. onto that. And it's interesting yeah. in its on its blindness to what it's doing, I think. 
I mean, I think if you mm-hmm. were to ask John Ball, what are you doing? He would probably tell you something far more like colorblindness. Like there's that line where he talks mm-hmm. about like, when we die, all of us turn to skeletons. And so you don't see our color. And, yeah. you know, this kind of I'm happy being who I am. But it's very mm-hmm. clear that who who Ball puts at the center of like art, goodness, all that is right in his world are wealthy white people like there's this class and racial distinction that maybe he's blind to the you know thinking of like a poster and i think he spent a good portion of his life in california um his adult life Mm -hmm. that sort of ethic of like this is the land where color doesn't matter you know well because indeed like the the big thing was that they're having this music festival in the book right Mm -hmm. like they're having this music festival And for our listeners, I don't, it's like, don't think of like Bonnaroo, you know. Yeah, they're not playing on Woodstock here. Yeah, (laughs) no, it's not that kind of, it's not that kind of music festival. Um, They're going to have an orchestra, right? Yeah. Um, And Maestro, what's his name? Macaroni, Mark Mentoli. Maestro Macaroni. No, seriously, what is his name? It it is Mentoli. Yeah. Because I I consciously thought that it sounded an awful lot like macaroni, and I thought that was a funny so a funny thing it? for this guy to decide. I've got it's my Manitoli. Uh, Mantoli, Mantoli, Maestro Mantoli, and they always call him Maestro Mantoli. They all yeah. <laughs> His first name is Enrico, I believe, but they always call uh-huh. him Maestro. Maestro Manitoli is here for this music festival, and that's who ends up, you know, being murdered. Mm-hmm. They find this body, Sam Wood. Mm-hmm. The night patrolman of Wells, South Carolina, uh, mm-hmm. comes across this body uh, as he's going to the diner that he goes to every night for his sort of break because he he's the mm-hmm. night shipman. And as he's approaching the diner is when he finds this body in the middle of the road. And it's Maestro Mantoli. And then he goes off to arrest Virgil Tibbs and they go back to the police station and this is when they find out that Virgil Tibbs is a homicide detective. I know we already went through this. I'm just recapping everything. And then they, this is like when Chief Bill Gillespie, Gillespie is sort of introduced Mm -hmm. and he's particularly awful. I think I, I, I hate him in the book. I hate him in the movie and he contacts Pasadena police department based on what Tibbs says and kind of begrudgingly is like, okay, oh, I want you to stay and help us with this murder. And his whole motivation is, if it doesn't work out, I can blame him. If it does work out, I can take the credit. So, like, yeah. he only wants him around for his own sort of self-benefit. And mm-hmm. particularly what we learn later in the book is that he was unqualified for this job. And he only got mm-hmm. it because he was a Southerner, because they wanted... The, yeah. the the city council wanted to hire a southern person for the police chief. So he kind of, that's how that's how Virgil Tibbs gets wrapped into this homicide case. Summarizing the novel from there would be a process of naming the people that Gillespie wrongly thinks is the killer, and then Tibbs showing how they could not possibly be the killer because they're left-handed or because of X, right. Y, and Z reasons. And then at the end of the novel, we get a very traditional sort of confrontation where he reveals that the killer is, in fact, the the counterboy at the diner 
that wood goes to. Right? Yeah. And you're skipping over like kind of the important part about, I, I guess that's where you're going and how he arrived at this conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm skipping over a lot because, you know, it's, it's a very traditional detective story. <laughs> like I, um, what, yeah. are, what are you thinking that's particularly I mean, significant? The whole, the whole subplot. I mean, I don't think anyone accused Ball of writing a particularly well-constructed novel. And mm. I mean, I think he, he kind of does his grab bag of hot topics that he wants to address. And mm-hmm. one of them that I think Eric maybe is referencing is this, the abortion plot. Yeah. That yeah, yeah, the yeah. reason this murder happens is basically the counterboy wants to get money for an abortion. Mm-hmm. So he because doesn't they're... need to kill Minpo, Min, the maestro. Mm-hmm. He just needs to knock him out, ends up killing him by accident. But it's all to pay for an abortion with this um, woman that we mentioned, Miss Purdy, who's an exhibitionist and basically gets accused of wearing the wrong thing, which is how Tibbs knows that she's yeah. lying. She was wearing oh. too revealing of an outfit. Um, she was wearing too revealing an out- of an outfit when she came in to complain about uh, Wood assaulting her. Yeah, yeah the rhetoric was- <laughs> of like don't believe victims yeah. in this book is horrifying. I I think we yeah. should be clear that this is not a particularly good book, and that and put the sense that it's written in its writing and in its themes i mean i i think i mentioned i taught this book i like teaching bag books sometimes because sometimes it's hard for people to understand completely like this was thought of as like white liberalism in the 1960s Mm -hmm. um yeah and it's pretty horrific in several places the things this guy feels comfortable writing and feeling Mm -hmm. comfortable that he'll be applauded for writing i mean i don't think Mm -hmm. paul was thinking he was going to go out on a limb with this book Mm -hmm. that it's it's very much and like this line kind of sums up what we were talking about at the end Gillespie says to Virgil, and this is like uttered unironically, thank you, Virgil, he said, you're great credit to your race. He paused. I mean, of course, the human race. And it's like Ooh, the end of the chills. paragraph. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> well, because it says specifically because he like, he read this somewhere <laughs> and right? then he quotes it. Yeah. There's a, there's an interesting undercurrent here though, uh, through, to, uh, through the novel dealing with these different characters. And Gillespie is a particularly interesting example, but it's true of all of them. Every single character in this book is basically a big child with the exception of Virgil Tibbs, who is the Ubermensch. Everyone else in this book is acting on like they act entirely on reflex they act entirely on their own self-gratification gillespie is an infant essentially (laughs) and uh like even at the end he he says he thought about shaking tibbs hand and then he decided he had done it once and made his point and he would not do it again which i think and and this isn't to contradict what you're saying but i think that does complicate some of this talk about the way that race is handled in this book because with the exception of of sam wood most of the characters who are forced to come to grips with their own the white characters who are forced to come to grips with their racism in this book don't really actually wind up resolving that much like gillespie does not turn into a lovable southern cop at the end he's still a figure of fun we're still meant to laugh at him and again, this isn't to contradict what you're saying, but I think that there's a, a sort of complication in there in that the way the story is told, maybe it has to do with genre. The way the story is told doesn't allow the story to actually end on a sort of comfortable post-racial note. 
because Gillespie's still a fool right up to the last page of the novel. And we're meant to understand that. Yeah, but I think it's the the shift that has occurred is now he's a much more harmless fool. Mm-hmm. That this quote that he had hated before, like that the line about yeah. he's a credit to the human race. He can say it now, and mm-hmm. he can shake his hand, and he can, mm-hmm. you know, you're. I think you're you're right. That's a great point. That it's it's not like everyone goes skipping off into the sunset, but you right. the, the feeling that this town is lawless and full of people that are, are um, racially motivated and are going to stop the next Virgil Pibbs in the train station and lock him away has dissipated. Now you've got the union mm-hmm. between the North and the South and you have Gillespie taken to the train station. And sure, the races still exist. Sure, it's not completely absolved, but we're moving towards more of that sense of that this has become mm-hmm. more like the rest of the United States, which is often the project with like going to the South and trying to like mm-hmm. make it more like the rest of the United States with the assumption that the rest of the United States is where we find post-racial liberalism, which falls apart in the, the 70s or by the end of the 60s. Well, and specifically yeah. that it, I, I know that we touched on this, but I really want to emphasize it, that it really positions even the racism in the South. Like it doesn't, I guess it does emphasize a little, I, I guess it does show a little bit of like how it's structured because they talk about like the city council and like how they you know specifically wanted him and this stuff but at the end of it like if if we're going to talk about how it really treats racism at the end of it it is that it is the it rests in the fucking poor uneducated illiterate white southerner and one of the things that happens and this reminded me a lot of like erskine caldwell obviously but like it's depiction of the purdy's and ralph i mean i'm just looking at this quote right now this is their they were talking about what happened and oh grace endicott again like this is like a liberal white northern woman he's from the north yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, grace endicott shook her head what a dreadfully warped mind that boy must have i can't conceive of it he's like an animal and that's just one example Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of there's a lot of language throughout that like animalizes the Purdy's and Ralph. And mm-hmm. again, I, I think it is feeding into this narrative that both y'all are talking about that it, it, it's like it localizes it in a specific kind of stereotype or trope of white Southerner and not. Yeah. And the well, rest of the racism is mostly well, like it's, it's mostly shown off as like, a misunderstanding or something right. that could be wrong with one yeah. encounter. For like or, the for like the good guys. Yeah. yeah you're right. You're right. Which yeah, make up absolutely. the vast yeah, majority yeah. of the town. It's just like the mm-hmm. yeah, the poor white people who are who are shown as incapable or being you know, creating mm-hmm. the worst violence. But even like the murder isn't is a mistake, that it's it's something yeah. that it's relatively close to the surface. It, you know, it, it's yeah. the book does no work in sort of explaining the deeper groundworks of the, of the have, motivations. Have you, have you read the other Virgil Tibbs novels? I have not. Yeah. Because there were like eight more of these I things. Know. One was enough. And I was, I was wondering if, because, and this is going to get to questions of genre, which I'm really itching to get to. The other novels take place outside of the South. Uh, they take place in the Far East. They take place in California and Virgil Tibbs moves through different levels of like society 
in each of these novels. And so I was wondering if Ball ever revisits what in the 1960s they called the race question in some of these other novels, or if it's treated as something that doesn't need to be thought about again. Yeah, it'd be fascinating um, to know. I don't, I don't it, really know. And and this takes me because I think a lot of the I think a lot of the issues that we're identifying here have to do with the fact that Ball is using a structure of storytelling to engage with, but not actually talk about. And this is an important distinction that I'll I'll unpack in a minute. To engage with, but not actually talk about issues that aren't necessarily fitted for the form that he's trying to use. That is to say, so when I when I sat down to read this novel, I only knew the reputation of the movie. I had not read the book. I hadn't even seen the movie, but I knew the reputation of the movie as a race movie, right? It's a movie about Southern racism. And so I sat down to read the novel, this novel about Southern racism. And what I discovered was a very standard golden age style murder mystery. You change Virgil Tibbs to Ellery Queen, you make him white, and it would sit beside any of the Ellery Queen novels and sit very comfortably there. What Ball does in this novel, because Ball, he was a Sherlockian. He was a member of the Baker Street Irregulars, which is like one of the oldest fan clubs for Sherlock Holmes uh, in the world. And Virgil Tibbs is not a black detective. He's a black Sherlock Holmes. And we see this in a couple of ways. We see this in his mode of deduction, which is much more sort of the, oh, I noticed the dust on your car and therefore I decided blah, 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 which is not how it's handled in the movie. We can talk about that when we get to the movie. He's also a master of martial arts. Uh, Eric, you, you glommed onto that. That's straight from Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes was a master of martial arts. Therefore, Virgil Tibbs must be a master of martial arts. So what Virgil Tibbs is, is he's a series detective and Ball is doing the same thing that writers of detective fiction have done since Sherlock Holmes, which is they say, let's take Sherlock Holmes and let's change one thing about him and make him into another detective. So we'll make him Chinese. Now he's Charlie Chan. We'll make him Belgian. Now he's Yacupuaro. And here we're going to make him black. Now he's Virgil Tips. Okay. So is, so, so is Sam Woods uh, Watson. Sam Woods is absolutely filling the Watson-like role, but he's much more filling the role of the young lovers that show up in like Agatha Christie novels or even Ellery Queen novels. The young guy who is taken under the wing of the detective and he gets the romance because a detective cannot have romance because the detective must be someone who's outside the social system and can just leave at the end of the story. There are exceptions to this. Peter Whimsey had a romance and he was very boring after that. So, so what I'm saying here is the novel is essentially a bog standard. And I mean this with love because I love these stories. It's a bog standard detective story of the classical analytic tradition. It's not even a hard boiled story. It is a pure small town murder mystery like anything by Ellery Queen or Hugh Holman or John Dixon Carr or any of these people. Yeah. Okay. I think that's exactly right. And I think that the that what we've been talking about is like his evident clumsiness and handling anything to do with race. I mean this is not yeah. someone that sat and thought deeply about questions of race in America. 
it's somebody throwing exactly. in a few stereotypes into a Sherlock Holmes novel. And there's no way we're talking about this book if Sidney Portier, Portier doesn't decide to star as Virgil Tibbs um, and adds exactly. so much more to the film that that complicates it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because when we get to the movie, we'll talk about how it's changed. The movie is, I mean, it's really great. <laughs> but the movie is also not a standard detective story. It's the equivalent of taking an Agatha Christie novel and making it into a movie about Brexit, which they did. And it makes, it gives the novel an interesting tension though. And this is something I think I liked the novel quite a bit more than y'all did. And part of the reason is that it's got this interesting tension. It's not a container that's built to hold questions of race because it relies on least likely suspect. Uh, it relies on the detective being an outsider. And all of these things just don't work well if you actually want to talk about race in the South in the 1960s. <laughs> it's fascinating, though. It's so interesting. I mean, it's, the reason I, I wanted to, to teach it is, is one, it talks about adaptation, but two, mm-hmm. to show kind of like the boilerplate, typical mm-hmm. white liberal, but not somebody that's really pushing the boundary in any direction. And just, you know, it's it's... Again, like what the novel actually demonstrates is the way that racism is not contained to the South. The way that these racial mm-hmm. stereotypes mm-hmm. very much extend beyond in different forms, maybe with different tenors and different kinds of structures upholding that racism. And I think that that's what makes this book interesting to me, at least when I, when I read it, is it, mm-hmm. it has all of the standard this is why I'm not guilty of any racial problems yep. um, from Ball's perspective. Yeah. And it, it blares it almost to a comical extent. And I, again, I think that that's, that's something that the movie, I mean, it'd be, I obviously can't get inside people's heads, but it seems to me like if you took the movie without Sidney Poitier's inflections, it would be performing mm. a, a relatively similar function. And I'm not even yeah. entirely sure it, as much as I think the movie is more interesting, that it does all that successfully challenge racism outside the South. I mean, I think it's where, where it's really incredible is showing the humanity of, of racism, the way that it, it leads to rage, the, the way that it boils below the surface and touches everything. Yeah. But I'm not even sure that the film really does that much to challenge white liberals in you New know, York. Both reading the book and watching the movie really really gave me a feeling of miasma. <laughs> you shouldn't do that while you're watching a movie. <laughs> Calibers and some toothpicks. Why won't anybody here tell me what's happened to it? Are you sure you're pregnant? Yes, I am pregnant! I can pull that fat cat down. I'm afraid you're a little late, Virgil. We already got the guilty man. May I examine this person? Yeah, you can look at him. Come on, let him look. He's left-handed, isn't he? What's that make him? Innocent. I got the motive which is money and the body which is dead. You're holding the wrong man. But don't you push me, boy! They call me Mr. Tibbs. And we're back. This is the Projectionist Lending Library, and we're moving from the novel, In the Heat of the Night, to the movie, 
In the Heat of the Night, a movie which I think we're all agreed is substantially better than the novel. Yeah, I feel like we should be kicked out of our position <laughs> as people who study literature based on the fact that we've all agreed that a movie is better than the book. Um, <laughs> than the book, yeah. But indeed I, uh, it is in this case. This is, I was telling Eric, I think before you even got on the call, I think of all the books that we talked about this season, this is the one that most radically changes from the novel. And I don't mean that just in terms of plot beats, although the plot beats are significantly changed in some key ways. But I mean in terms of the tone of the piece. Like I said, uh, when we were talking about the book, the book is very, you know, standard mid-century murder mystery. It's got a little hint at wanting to be atmospheric at the beginning. The opening passage is essentially ripped from Chandler. Uh, but after that, it kind of settles down into, you know, people in rooms talking about the murder. The movie really tries to give you a feeling and to say something about race in a way that I think the novel's not trying to actually say anything about race. So what what's some background information on the novel that we, uh, on the movie that we need to have up front? It stars Sidney Poitier, directed by uh, Jewison, Norman Jewison. One um, best picture um, in the 1968 Oscars beat out beat out The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde. Guess who's coming to dinner? It, yeah, it was a, it was quite a year for best pictures, and they were considered they were considered an underdog. I I, I was reading this in um, I don't have the book on me. Actually, it's a book I think Will gave me. It was about uh, cinema in the 60s, but Warren Beatty was. They were basically sure Bonnie and Clyde were going to win this, for lack of a better word. I guess it was like an upset that mm. In the Heat of the Night won Best Picture. I mean, it's understandable. It's, I think it's a. I think it's quite a good movie. I mean, it also is in a long line of Oscar-winning films that feel good about themselves. That's the yeah. That, like, I, I yeah, I I see it that way a lot too. Well, that yeah. it's like not to be overly cynical, and, and no, think I think we'll, we'll get into it. That the movie is interesting. And, yeah. and doing some well, I mean, amazing things, but it also is a way to take this film as and, a nice pat on the back to the to the and, and, and if and to emphasize that it did one best actor, and that was what's his name Rod, Rod, Rod Steiger. Rod mm-hmm. Steiger. Sidney Poitier was not even nominated for actor supporting or anything. Yeah. Well, I think Poitier had two movies up for awards that year, and he wasn't nominated for Best Actor in either of them. Right, because he's also (laughs) in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, right? Yeah, exactly. And he didn't have any... I mean, he had had won a Best Actor by this point. Mm -hmm. So I guess the Academy was like, well, we gave him one. We gave him one. So that's enough. I was Uh, watching the opening scenes. Yeah. I thought of eric of your research just i mean it's hard to watch the film with fresh eyes so at that point i already knew the killer and was going to be ralph the soda shop guy and watching that opening scene i couldn't help but think like your work on like infreakment um, and what was going on there when when we watched it in that very opening scene elizabeth was like Mm -hmm. he's the killer I was like, what are you talking about? And but like, no, seriously, but like, that's basically what she pinned it on. Will is like, basically, I mean, she didn't use that discourse, but no, it's obvious. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. ended up being, yeah, true. 
being correct. Wow. wow. The opening scene is, is, you know, you have the flies and the rotted food mm-hmm. and the, the pimples and him, mm-hmm. you know, exuding this sort of creepiness yeah. that sets the tone for the film. Oh, fun fact about this movie. It was not actually filmed in the South, mostly. It was filmed in the North. Uh, Shocking. Partly because... Well, I mean, a large part of it was because Poitier had been doing some civil rights work down in the South and been threatened with death, with murder. And so he just refused to go. They had to film the scene in the cotton field in Mississippi. And when they went down there, he slept with a gun under his pillow wow. uh, every night. I think it was in Tennessee, been... but yeah. There's that scene where out, they're outside the diner towards the close of the film. You can see their breath coming out yeah 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 the sweltering hot day and and a couple times i noticed in the distance you could see autumn leaves appearing on trees (laughs) (laughs) if you pay attention Mm -hmm. uh it's there before we dig into like some of the deeper themes uh Mm -hmm. of the film can can we just talk about like what the differences are just like tell our audiences like how it's because it's I found it interesting that it seems like it kind of begins and ends in the same place, but like yeah, yeah, in yeah. between, it's very different. It reminds me of like Borges's The Garden of Working Paths. All right, plots yeah. like have the same beginning and ending, but have a million different ways of how they get there. Yeah. The movie has a lot that's similar to the book, but it's decidedly very different. So I was wondering if we could just both in terms of plot and sort of theme and mood before we dug into it. Can we just talk about that? Yeah. I mean, probably the biggest difference is the move from well, South Carolina to Sparta, Mississippi. Which You think that's the biggest difference? I think it's a, a really big difference in the sense that South Carolina, because of Charleston, because of the beaches, it has an entire, it's one of the Carolina, you know, it just has an entirely different space in the national imaginary mm-hmm. than Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Mississippi, you can put anything in Mississippi and people will believe it only happens in Mississippi. Like it almost yeah. doesn't matter what atrocity you show, there's an iron tight border around Mississippi that may go into Alabama, but just parts of Alabama. I feel like um, I feel like Alabama is adjacent, but not the same. Like Yeah, I mean Mississippi is a stand in. I mean, I mean Alabama's un Alabama's unofficial state motto is at least we're not Mississippi. Right. So <laughs> like <laughs> Very much so. uh, yeah, that that change down there, and this is a, this is particularly important because, like I say, uh, Poitier had been down to Mississippi and he had been had received death threats uh, in some of his civil rights work down there. It seems like at this point when this movie was being made, Mississippi was kind of a locus of racial tension, and so moving the movie there is is kind of a part of that, right? Sixty seven. Mm. I don't think Mississippi is unique. I mean, it may be. I mean, I wouldn't say I wouldn't sense. say it's unique. It's the '60s in the American South, but right. you know. and in America, where I mean, it becomes the sort of caricaturization of it. Yeah, and not know. to say that the horror isn't real and that there is right. Like, yeah, I guess not. Car- yeah, that's a poor choice of words. Like maybe poster child or or something that, but it, it pins it on here in this locale, and mm-hmm. it is very much centered in this locale and it's not elsewhere are you suggesting will that in this way the movie is perhaps less progressive than the novel in that the novel is <laughs> willing to set the the nightmarish southern town further north 
Yeah, I mean, this is what I mean by the what I think that makes the novel so much better is pretty much limited to Sidney Poitier's mm-hmm. performance in the sense that mm-hmm. the novel, I mean, the, the movie itself is not, it's progressive in the way that white liberals love to be progressive. Mm-hmm. You know, let's put something that shows how horrible white people that are not us mm-hmm. are, and then we can all revel in the good feeling of reminding ourselves that we're the good, right kind of white people. And yeah, that ties into the freak study stuff too. Right? Yeah, that this is this is what people love to do when they talk about race. And so by locating mm-hmm. it in Mississippi, it creates a sense of distance to 99. Again, like Alabama's unofficial state motto, like even if you're in Alabama, <laughs> you're like... <laughs> right, you're like, yeah, I'm not in Mississippi. <laughs> At least it's not here. Like, yeah, that stuff probably does happen in Mississippi, um, but it doesn't happen here. And then you also show, like the book does, these levels of sort of whiteness within even Mississippi, Mm -hmm. where most of them are actually, you know, relatively decent. And they're, you know, Mm -hmm. they are persuadable. And, you know, in the right situations, they understand, still believe in things like justice. You know, there isn't Mm -hmm. the sort of like lynching or... You know, the realities right. of rest of us, once they figure out Ted's is a police officer, they immediately let him go. You know, there's all of these sort of mm-hmm. things. Well, they, I mean, to be fair, there is like an attempted lynching in the movie. A couple. And, and, a couple and, yeah, and so. It's not state and so, none. The, and, the key thing is there that it's, that the policeman comes in. Right. And stops yep. the lynching. Yes. But the, but yeah, the, that the was. Is very much, I mean, on the side of, of right, often, you know, I mean, they're not perfect, mm-hmm. but, they're, but they're the ones that come in and interrupt that. Yeah, that's that a good point. point. So along with it being in Mississippi, like, what are the other major changes from the book the to the movie? Change, the key change, as far as I'm concerned, is the character of Virgil Tibbs. In the novel, he is soft-spoken. He's, like I've said before, he's basically Sherlock Holmes. His well, methods are Sherlock Holmesian. And he's a master of things like judo and this sort of thing. In the movie, as played by Sidney Poitier, Virgil Tibbs is pissed off from the very beginning, like openly pissed off. He's angry, and that anger is showing in his eyes for the whole time. His methods are much more what we would consider scientific. It's less sitting back and saying, oh, there's dust on your car, and it's more... I need a thermometer so I can measure the guy's brain temperature. And his fighting style is not this sort of exoticized judo taekwondo thing. Yeah, his what, fighting like he style says, he's is, like, oh, I was taught by Mr. Tashihami or something. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> that in the book, in the book, his fighting style is very exoticized. That fits with his role as okay. a great detective. In the movie, like he grabs a bar and he's swinging at people. But he has to be rescued by the the tougher uh, police inspector who comes in and runs the lynchers off. It's a fundamental change in the character. I think it's a change for the better in terms of getting to the racial stuff. But it is. I think that's the biggest change that's happening. I here. I agree, and I and I definitely want and wanted to talk about that. But when I was talking about like what are some of the changes, I meant like some of the shit like he's from Philadelphia. And not Pasadena. I meant like, <laughs> there's not the music festival. It's just a rich guy. 
<laughs> well, it's not just a rich guy. Uh, as Will pointed out earlier, it's a guy who's bringing industry to the town, which so changes they, the class so, discourse. So, yep. So they, they, they switch it from inviting or, or wanting it to be a hub for like art and culture to one of industry. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the book, they say there's, I'm not going to track it down right now, but there's this long thing of like, you must not know anything about like Southern economy. But, you know, the, the highway went a different way. Uh, we yep. haven't gotten industry to our town yet and farming yep. is fizzling out or whatever. Mm-hmm. So in fact, in the book, it's, they are doing the music festival specifically because industry along with everything else is not working here. This is another interesting thing where the sheriff or the uh, the chief is trying to convince Tibbs to stay. One of the things he says is that half the people uh, hired at this factory are going to be African-American. And he says, this is an important line. This is a key line. He says, these are your people. And Tibbs says, no, they're your people. You created this, which is an interesting, an interesting sort of, perspective and one that I don't think is an exclusively white liberal perspective from the 1960s uh, because it's similar to what Baldwin for instance says when he says the problem of race is a white people problem it's not does a it, black people problem does it matter that in the movie he's from Philadelphia versus in the book he's from Pasadena will is nodding yes i agree why 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 does it matter will it just fits more clearly along the the north-south divide when drawing the distinction. Um, it's a different kind of privileging. Just in, in California, I mean, there's also the reality of like the Watts riots happening, which maybe they wanted to avoid mm-hmm. that. But there's the it just fits more neatly into like the north-south division. Yeah, I mean, I, and it makes it easier. I mean, California. California leaves open the indictment of sort of old America and it privileges this new America, which there's obviously problems with that narrative, but that's typically the narrative that California is where you have hippies and you're breaking down barriers. And that's, that's what I was going to say, right? Like, I think that both the book and the movie point to different like national mythos in that in the movie from philadelphia hmm hey y'all like what's significant about philadelphia cheesesteaks <laughs> city of brotherly love well you know like the constitution was created there right, that was right. like the first <laughs> national capital this is yeah the city of brotherly love this is the liberty bell this is like the city of actual democracy that mm-hmm. he comes from there as opposed to yeah coming from california where California is like a sort of mythic American like wonderscape. Uh like yeah, mm-hmm. like maybe like they they say this in the book, especially and and this was I don't think this guy was in the movie. The engineer from California. Oh Do you remember my, him? the guy that that's Yeah, in, there's an I, engineer that they're yeah. trying to pin the murder yeah, on. Yeah, because one Ralph yeah. tried to pin it on him. I don't remember if he's in mm-hmm. the movie or not, but at least in the book no. he's like he says something to says something about also being from California, but that California yeah, yeah. is this sort of like maybe utopian distant landscape, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. I don't know. I think that like him being from the different places matters, but like they both represent sort of different ideals well, of like I think making him, what America wants itself to be. 
Yeah, I think making him a Californian in the book, also Californian in the book, also one, makes him more glamorous. Well, one way. might be like retrospective, and one might be yeah. future oriented, yeah. right? In the yeah. movie, like looking back to Philadelphia, whereas in the book, like looking towards California. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't thought about yeah. this that much. The movie is more interested in redeeming an old, you know, working industrial type of American dream mm-hmm. thing, whereas Ball's more interested in free thinking, Western liberalism, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of art culture. We need more hippies in the South. Whereas right. I don't, the movie is far more interested in like, we need more of like what America makes America great in the South, which well, is like- industrial leaders. And that's the other difference is like the Indicott. Um, mm-hmm. in the movie and probably like the most climactic or the thing that makes the movie most interest it is like that slap that Cindy Portier gives the yeah. rich white man. Oh, um, yeah. Which is apparently, I, I think he insisted that that be in there and um, that he was going yeah, to get slap him back. Yeah. Or at least there the seems to be some, there seemed to be, yeah, there seems to be some controversy about that. Portier says mm-hmm. that he insisted that that be in there. Uh, Mark Harris, in his book Pictures from a Revolution, apparently tracked down the original shooting script and the slaps in the script. So it wasn't in the original treatment. It is in the script. They may have, I guess, thought about taking it out at some point. But that slap is so important for the next three or four scenes that I, I don't see how it could have possibly been improvised because that slap is why they demand that he leaves in the 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 second or third time they demand that he leaves but it's so. that that rejection makes it not just a rejection of poor whites it makes it a rejection of the south um mm-hmm. which is slightly different again like we've been talking about the positionality of most people consuming and celebrating the film it doesn't change materially whether they feel indicted in american racism it does paint with a little bit broader brush and it's less, it's sort of willing to admit that the well-mannered white aristocrats mm-hmm. and the entry, like in that scene, Endicott calls him Mr. Tibbs um, yeah, and like yeah. welcomes in and offers him something to drink and has all of the sort of like tells of manners and sophistication. <laughs> yeah. In my <laughs> notes, because I take notes as I'm watching it with just my impressions. And in my notes, when he first shows up, I wrote like something like, oh, he doesn't seem as bad as they've been saying he's going to be this whole time. And then he starts talking and I was like, oh, <laughs> OK, I see what's happening here. This yeah. Is- which is, well, is he the one in the greenhouse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's yeah. the one in the greenhouse. So that's another yeah. difference, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, key thing about Endicott is his fortune seems to be based on cotton. When they're driving up to his house, they're driving past the cotton fields. You get a lot of like shots of laborers picking cotton, which obviously this is set in the 60s. But that visual is certainly evoking the idea of the antebellum South and laborers in the cotton field. And so the fact that you've got a conflict sort of at the core of this, well, not even at the core of the action, but not at the core of the mystery, which is something that maybe we can talk about. But at the core of the action, the what what Tibbs perceives as a key conflict is between the old cotton growing south and the new industrialized south, because Tibbs wants to pin this murder on Endicott. He thinks Endicott did it. 
And so he sees it as a conflict between Old South and New South. As it turns out, it's not. But I don't think that matters for the experience of watching the movie that much. Yeah, which the movie, like the book, I mean, the movie's more interesting because I think it's, it's, it's evoking that divide. Mm-hmm. And in a way that that has the potential to be a lot more complicated than like good versus evil, like New South industrialism mm-hmm. equals good, mm-hmm. Old South equals bad. I mean, they both could be characterized as bad. Um, and, and certainly mm-hmm. Forte's rage at this sort of the whole reality of it, of everything yeah. about that um, has a lot of potential. But like the book, it kind of does that like, Oh, just kidding. Here's the real killer and we're done now. But Baldwin writes about in the heat of the night. I don't know if y'all, mm. y'all came across that. And uh, he wrote a, a film review on it. And, yeah. um, he talks about, and he's mostly pretty critical of it, like Portia, but mm. he talks about like the homosocial tension, um, between the sheriff and Portier's character and like, when oh, he wrote alone, Leslie Fiedler on it. Yeah. When well, they're alone. In the sort of like room talking to each other about loneliness. And he says mm-hmm. that last scene where they're looking at each other is probably the closest, you know, American cinema would ever get to showing like a gay, um, kissing scene, fade out scene. And he thought that part of it was fascinating. This brings me to like two things I wanted to talk about that are related in what was changed, which is the two characters, Gillespie and mm-hmm. Sam. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that what you're talking about, the story you're talking about, Will, right, is like with Gillespie, right? Rod Steiger, Steiger, mm-hmm. um, yeah. who who fucking won a best actor for this shit, is kind of terrible in the movie, and he's worse in the book. I was really surprised on watching this movie that he won that. But then also, I think one of the things that I notice a lot in terms of like character changes is... Uh, Sam Woods in the book mm-hmm. and and maybe it's because in the book mm-hmm. you got a little bit more like in his head and stuff but in the movie he's kind of just like a putsy like well yeah in the book Woods is a he's the designated love interest right so you've got to have a romance subplot in here and so he's he's the romance subplot <laughs> he gets the girl at the end and he's the one as we mentioned when we were talking about the book he's the one that has the real character arc of going from being a racist to being someone who's less racist mm-hmm. <laughs> because he respects but in the uh, movie, this one black guy but in the but movie, in the movie he's nothing he's he's a total side character all of that all of that is transferred to rod steiger i think yeah and i, I think that again this is the different in what what the film is trying to redeem versus what the, the movie is trying to redeem in the sense that the, the film is interested in rejecting the South. It's buying into the myth mm-hmm. that they, and the novel is doing this to a certain extent too, that they, the way that the South becomes redeemed is by becoming more like the North. Mm-hmm. Um, but the novel seems far more interested in sort of demonstrating a wide swath of Southern mm-hmm. redemption, whereas the movie is far more sort of like narrowly focused and most of the South is, is seen as a place that should just like go ahead and die and build mm-hmm. some factories. Um, mm-hmm. 
and Steiger's character is per, is redeemed, but in sort of a narrow sense. I mean, by the end, he's carrying Tibbs's bags, and you have that what Baldwin reads as a romantic fade out well, scene. And that's at the end of the book too, though. Bless me, like grabs his suitcase. The other way, yeah. Well, he yeah, grabbed that. Yeah. He grabs his suitcase and carries his suitcase for him. And Gillespie in the book is is Southern, but he's clear is um well, he's Texan. Uh, and he mentions it several times that he's yep. Texan, which is its own sort of. In, in fact, yeah, there's because that was like, OK, so he is not qualified to be police chief. Right. But they needed to hire someone. And this is before the actual events of the book. This is told to us kind of later. But they have this sort of job opening, I guess. And there are a lot of people that are qualified, but they're northern and the city council like really insisted on so it's being somebody southern and he is southern but he's texan mm-hmm. and that's something that he will bring up to differentiate himself mm-hmm. specifically in times of tension i'll show these folks what there's one line that says like he wasn't going to let southern white trash show him what to do he was from Texas. Yeah. That was, the, yes, thank mm-hmm. you. That was the line I was trying to sort of remember. And I again, know. I think this is why I think that the change in location is so important. It's because you can redeem South Carolina, which was the project Charleston mm-hmm. and several of the beach cities in South Carolina and a lot of North Carolina were doing throughout the 60s was redeeming their image. We're, rev- mm-hmm. we're actually a revolutionary city. We've got beaches come to the Sun Belt South. They were, I mean, you can, in the National Imaginary, redeem South Carolina. You can't redeem Mississippi. Like Mississippi, the whole like point of Mississippi in the National Imaginary is it is where we house racism. And so like the project, again, is completely different. And it allows mm-hmm. you to sort of like narrow in on like maybe one or two people. But it it changes, I think what they're trying to accomplish they're not trying to redeem the land they might try to redeem like a couple people maybe you can like set it on a path towards more progress with factories but the feeling of the film is so much darker and i think part mm-hmm. of that is because it's well one it's in the you know late 60s as opposed to the early 60s you're already dealing with a lot of the you know whatever optimism exists in the early 60s is definitely on its way down and so it it, it just hit and this is your point of handle just the the tone of it so much different yeah and and like we've mentioned a couple of times you've mentioned particularly a big part of that is poitier who is roiling through the entire movie Mm -hmm. Uh, this movie would not be the same movie if they had cast another actor who was more willing to play a, a sort of easygoing figure mm-hmm. or right. subdued or, or subdued yeah Did you see that borne out very clearly in the television show oh yeah okay yeah i mean the same sense of the like the he's so much you know like he's willing to laugh and say that the moral equation between martin luther king jr and robert e lee is perfectly acceptable whereas like it's yeah. hard to imagine poitier being like oh yeah cool you know you're the same person basically it it loses that edge to it where you always feel like through the film that portier is like a minute from losing it that he just and that's that's like one of the things that i thought i was so fucking flabbergasted about 
is how he did not have an Oscar nomination for this. And I can't help but think it's specifically because of that fucking, mm-hmm. like, s- not subtle, but like quiet rage throughout yeah. his entire performance. And what we obviously know the performance suggests as just like, no, he's, I couldn't believe that Gillespie got a fucking Oscar for best actor. Like that is, that is absurd. That is ridiculous. The Sandra Bullock yeah. at this time. Hey, I, <laughs> least, I mean, I love Sandra Bullock, but I, I know, I, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I agree with you, but I, I mean, it is. I, I, again, that's why, why I think that the, where the film is interesting is the, the sort of like overt message on race is not what's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's the, right, exactly. what gets snuck in. Mm-hmm. And what, what makes films such a powerful medium is its ability to do that sort of work where like the writing and yeah. the, the direction and all of that was meaning to give one message. And what stands out to me is the rage the the sense yeah, of exactly the indignity of racism and the way that it clouds it doesn't matter how hard you try to be Virgil Tibbs from Edward Ball's novel who's completely refined and together mm-hmm. and always sort of like looking down his nose like the humanity of the real like the reality of it is like living in racist mm-hmm. systems is rage inducing and rightfully so yeah. and that yeah. part's fascinating and well worth people watching the film but the actual message on race fits very neatly into North slash nation, white liberals trying to work through race at an arm's length, which mm-hmm. is what they did in the sixties. I think well, that even cause you were describing the way that the way that the TV series handles race versus the way the movie handles race. I think mm-hmm. you can actually see the movie tending that direction though. Uh, if you'll remember the scene where uh, right after the slap, this remarkable scene. So they leave, it leaves the white guy, in tears, Endicott in tears over the set. And I just thought that was, a, I thought that was beautiful. That was a wonderful little moment, like white fragility on film. And then outside, Tib says, I can pull that fat cat down. Right. And then the sheriff looks at him and he says, well, you're just like us, which on the one hand is interesting because he's seeing a shared humanity in Tibbs. Not in the way that the novel does, where it's like, oh, you're not like my stereotypes, but in that he's identifying a shared capacity for violent rage. There's that homosocial bonding between these two men. But on the other hand, it's starting to edge towards that equivalence that you saw in other quote unquote progressive entertainments of the time, like Star Trek, where the idea was, where the idea was that if both sides could just quit hating each other, we could mm-hmm. all get along. And so it's not quite there yet in the movie, but it's already pushing towards the idea that a white man who hates a black man and a black man who hates being hated mm-hmm. are both equally wrong because they're both hating. Yeah, hates bad. <laughs> no, I think that that's a huge part of the film's message. I mean, well, mm-hmm. it, it's very much tied into the the problem with race is we don't have enough, you know, friends of a different color, and you know, if we would just spend a late night time talking, you know, one talking night and solve racism in America. But 
but even in that even in that exchange what's interesting is that they get to a certain level and then the minute Tibbs starts to res- to respond to him on an equal level mm-hmm. the sheriff pulls back mm-hmm. like the very minute Tibbs says oh yeah I'm I'm alone too blah 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 the sheriff says basically you're getting too familiar now and I'm not yeah. going to be pitied which is like so, classic romance too, though, right? Like yeah. you are going a little bit too far and then the person pulls back and says, pulls no, I'm back, not ready yeah. for it yet. And then by the end, you've consummated. Exactly. And, and this goes to, too, I think the problem of structure, which is something that the movie inherits from the book. As different as the movie is from the book, it's still based on this very traditional detective story structure. Mm-hmm. And that demands that, that the, quote, least likely suspect be the killer. Which mm-hmm. means that the more politically interesting stuff, which would be to have Endicott be the person behind all of this, mm-hmm. can't happen. It structurally cannot happen because it has to be someone that you didn't suspect, unless you're Elizabeth, in which case you suspected them at once. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be the least likely suspect. And that really hamstrings the... I, I think mm-hmm. it would have been better if it was a noir, honestly, <laughs> uh, in terms of political relevance but it's not it's not based on a noir and it's not really a noir so it 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 has to pull that punch right at the end and say no actually it was would you say this movie is weirdly a feel-good movie Uh, well i mean we've been Mm -hmm. we've been talking about the way it makes white liberals feel good well that's why that's why i'm (laughs) like that's why i'm specifically like asking it this question directly this way is it a feel-good movie white people yeah i mean it's feel good in the same way that all Oscar-winning films about race, or most Oscar-winning films about race, are twelve years for slave. white people. Blindside, feel- Help. I don't know if that won an Oscar or not, but it was wildly popular. Green Book. I mean, the you know the it's feel good in that sense. It's a hard look at the racial sins of America. You know that again excuses ninety nine point nine percent of white people from feeling guilty about what they just witnessed. In that sense, it's feel good i don't necessarily feel that much better about sparta mississippi after tibbs leaves i mean i kind of feel like it's unlike the novel and that the novel leaves us very hopeful for well south carolina that like you've got the marriage you've got the people in charge are all now post-racial you've got like all of this sort of stuff leading to rebirth renewal head in the right direction i don't know if you really get that and feel that way in part of Mississippi. You maybe feel better about Gillespie, that he is somehow transformed through this moment, but the Endicots are still in charge at the end of the film. I'm about to say something that's crazy because I've been thinking about Tib's first name, uh, which is Virgil. <laughs> and uh, you don't really get this sense in the novel, but in the movie, this is this is for Virgil Tibbs. If you see this movie from his perspective, this is a journey into hell. He arrives in hell. He spends some time in hell, and then he leaves hell at the end. He's he's literally traveling through the inferno in the course of this, and then at the end, he's able to exit and go back to the paradise that is Philadelphia until the next movie comes along, which I've not seen. But have you have you watched the other two movies in this trilogy? No. Um, is Sidney Poitier in both of them? Yeah, he's in both of them, yeah. The oh second one's called okay, They we... Call Me Mr. Tibbs. Like, so if this does Purgatorio and then Paradiso, I will... 
<laughs> like chef's kiss. I will love it. It's the third one in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm not it's sure. I've not, I've not seen it. And it's at the Liberty Bell. Yeah, it's, in, it's in paradise. It's <laughs> Liberty Bell. in the background. Yeah. yeah. Makes a crack about freedom and moves on. Mm-hmm. This is making me but th- like the movies are not based on the other ball novels they're separate things so what we have here going back to eric's garden of the forking paths what we have here is basically three different journeys of virgil tibbs we've got the journey in the book we've got the journey in the movies and the journey in the tv series forking off mm-hmm. into different iterations of what they called the race problem and in serving America. different needs yeah 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 exactly this is like the third or fourth movie we've done that has an abortion at its core. Oh, man. Oh, they this, keep coming up. <laughs> we started queer and we end with abortions. I'm not sure what that says about the arc of this podcast. I don't know. You're right, but... though. Like that. <laughs> I w- when I was watching the scene with that actress that plays the abortionist who doesn't show up in the book, uh, I wrote down, what is this accent? But she's from Mississippi. And that's the scene where she points up the political stuff like the the implication of Virgil Tibbs being a police inspector. Virgil Tibbs is a cop, and this goes a long way towards, for the audience, validating law enforcement. Now, the, the, the abortionist calls this out. She says, you're the black man who worked for Mr. Charlie, right? Mr. Charlie being a, a name for the man, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's also, it shows up in the title of Baldwin's play, Blues for Mr. Charlie. There's a strong sense in which and maybe this is made more problematic by the fact that Poitier is playing this character as so uh, militant, right? But there's actually a real problem with the fact that your main detective is a black man who's on the police force because the police are one of the number one or, yeah, are one of the number one uh, mechanisms by which white power is maintained mm-hmm. in, in the United States. Remember how the character responds to that? Trying to yeah. remember what exactly he said because I remember that scene. I wrote down what she said that I, I didn't. That the police is stealing your soul. I don't really remember exactly how he responded. I think his response is something along the lines of, "Well, yeah, I do, but you're going to lose your job. You're going to be exposed. You're, you know, at this time it would have been an illegal mm-hmm. uh, operation. It's going to be." exposed and you're going to lose your job so you should probably work with me he basically extorts her to give give him information (laughs) and you know you get the feeling that if tibbs were to work full-time for the sparta police force then that would be a problem yeah but the whole they call me mr tibbs Mm -hmm. is predicated and that he gets respect and works for like a real police force in Philadelphia. Yeah. That it's not yeah. problematic for him to work, at least in the you know in the world of the film, for that police force. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And even the police force under Gillespie, trying to think like, are there crooked cops? Because the TV show makes a similar move. I'm getting all of these stories confused. Where you suspect yeah. the police. Like Bubba, mm-hmm. the person that Tibbs thinks commits the murder is a policeman, but it's revealed that he's not. He's actually like a hero. Um, mm-hmm. and it oh, and that's what happens with that. Sam Wood, right? Right. Same thing with Sam Wood. Yeah. It turns out that you were looking for it in the wrong place, which is 
again, it's a, a sort of redemption of the state, a redemption of, mm-hmm. you know, the powers that even in a place as corrupt and backward as Mississippi, they're mostly following the law and trying the, to pull and, that. And, and that the agents of the state are benevolent. That, yeah. it, you know, when confronted with clear justice, they will, I mean, clear evidence, they'll always follow the evidence that, you know. Yeah. He's willing to let Tibbs go. He's willing to let all of the, you know, these people that he wants to commit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, then and like, like that you were pointing out that it also does that move of showing that Tibbs is in the book does it too, that like Tibbs is just as guilty of it because he wants certain people to be guilty too. And he puts them mm-hmm. through the same sort of ordeals that he's put through just based yeah. on like prejudice. Yeah. The difference is in the book when he's chasing down the wrong lead, he's doing it in a way that is, I keep going back to Sherlock Holmes. It's exactly what Sherlock Holmes does. Sherlock Holmes will say, I was wrong for a long time because I thought this, this, and this, but then I discovered the truth and it was this. In the movie, it's explicitly, or at least highly hinted that it's because of that slap that he decides this must be the guy. And what he represents. Yeah. And what he represents. And then he's chasing that down, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the movie actually goes further in that direction than the book because the book, again, it's a generic detective story. This is what detectives do. They follow (laughs) the wrong lead and then they get the right lead. Right. Uh, In the, in the movie, it's explicitly tied to the race question. And that takes us to the, that takes us to the climax of the movie, which is when the, I think the movie really chickens out. It, it goes for this big finale where a racist mob corners Tibbs. Mm. And then Tibbs says, Oh no, here's the killer. He violated your sister because in the, uh, in the movie, it's the sister, not the daughter of Purdy. He, he violated your sister. And then Purdy immediately goes, Oh, well, I'm going to stop worrying about this strange black man and start going after this other guy and the mob just basically disperses because tibbs has shown them the truth which is that the corruption was within them all along uh it's an intensely cowardly move i'm not sure i mean they couldn't have ended (laughs) they couldn't have ended the movie realistically which would have been for them to go ahead and kill both of them but it's 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 chickening out right the movie pulls its punch right there at the end it uh, it does peter out at the end. Mm-hmm. And part of that is who is guilty and why they're guilty because it ends up having to do nothing to do with race, and it ends up having to do with an abortion, which is as you guys point out, it's a, a national. It's showing up in everywhere. But this is mm-hmm. a little you know secret at the heart of all sorts of actions, yeah. and mm-hmm. which is a sort of like bait and switch. So like you know. You thought this was going to be about race. All this was about race and just kidding. It's about abortion and the murder has nothing to do with these seething racial tensions. That it turns that into context. Right. Exactly. Instead of like the text, which I mean, to be, to be clear, like because film operates on several levels, that's fair in one way, but it's disappointing when you step back and look at the movie as sort of a complete thing. Right. <laughs> if, if your movie is telling me, Oh, this is about race. And then at the end, the plot has nothing to do with race. It feels like you've wasted some of my time. Why weren't you talking about the position of women in the South this whole time? Which isn't an issue, even though it's the core of the plot. Right. right. 
Okay, so let's take a break. When we come back, we'll bring some recommendations to the table and then sign out. Projectionist Lending Library. Once more, I'm Nathaniel Booth. I'm Eric Klein. Will Murray. And we've just finished our discussion of In the Heat of the Night. I think I think we generated as much light as we did heat on this one. Oh, something that I... Okay, so we're going to have to put this somewhere because one thing that's important here is that the title In the Heat of the Night matters a lot more for the novel than it does for the movie. Yeah, and it's because the body is heated up. Because the... Yes, so the the novel, because it's a standard detective story, the title is a clue, right? The title <laughs> gives you a clue to why the body is misidentified as as landing as when the murder occurred. The movie does not talk about that. Well, it's and even atmospheric. if the title doesn't give you a clue, all of the lines that say yeah. "heat of it the was night," <laughs> yeah, exactly. like even just like literally. <laughs> heat of the night exactly exactly so we're moving into recommendation what have y'all been enjoying lately um i'll go first as usual i have more than one and i'm sorry for that the first one i'm going to talk about is yoshihiro katsumi's abandon the old in tokyo it's a collection of short stories he was a, um, a manga writer, I guess, but they call it um, a spe- he, he called it a specific kind of manga. I don't know. It's from like the 60s, 70s, and it's kind of slice of life comic strips that have kind of existential weird twists to them. For example, one, he gets stranded in a, uh, a hole with this woman who like doesn't have a whole face it's all these kind of depressing stories but yeah abandon the old in tokyo the other one is master of reality by john darniel i've talked about john darniel on this show before of devil house and others um master of reality is actually like the first book he wrote and it's in this series by bloomsbury press where they have just different writers or artists uh, write a book about an album and i fully admit that i haven't read any others in the series so i don't know if they I, I i i don't know if they all go this way or if they're all like fictional in this way but this book by john Daniel is it was his first book and it's master of reality which was black sabbath's first album and the first half of the book is written as a journal where the protagonist narrator is an adolescent that is institutionalized in the 80s because basically he likes devil music and has smoked weed and his journal is kind of about that and being institutionalized and it goes through all this stuff but in it he starts talking about hey gary and and gary is like his counselor and he has he knows gary's reading his journal he's like i'm just gonna tell you like why i love this album so much so it goes through like track by track uh, like how great the album is and like what he thinks about it and like presumably it's john darniel kind of expressing his love album and then like it kind of stops halfway through the album and he has a uh entry in his journal like 
fuck you, Gary. And he's being sent to like the state institution. And so then that's, and that's it. And then like the second half of the book is like 20 years later. And he's like writing a letter back to this Gary, like, Hey, you probably don't remember me, but like, this is who I am. Blah, 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 blah. I came across my journal and, and, and he, he like finishes telling him about why he loves this album, but he does it with like a lot more bitterness of basically like, you ruined my life and it's really good and i I highly recommend it there's there's nothing there's there's no novels by john darniel that i don't like highly recommend so yeah that's in the that's in the 33 and a third series yes yep the 33 and a third series i read years ago i read elizabeth sandifer and s alexander reed's book on they might be giants album flood Oh, okay. Um, and it was it was pretty good. I think Ezra Furman also wrote something in that series. Oh, and, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, they're scholarship with style. They're not like your standard monograph. But I love this shit yeah. that it's like yeah. he created a a novel mm-hmm. around this writing prompt, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So. Essentially. Well, Will. Uh, do you yeah. have any recommendations? Sure. Um, middle of the semester, so I don't have as much time for reading for fun. Um, mm-hmm. But teaching Plato's Republic. What's that book about? It. Yeah, it's a bunch of, it's just basically one really long conversation <laughs> with a bunch of people like walking in and old people it's a talking. podcast before the fact. Right. Um, it's very high up. modernist. Right. Just a long monologue. Not much happens. It's not about the plot. But I'm also reading Percival Everett's The Trees, which is a novel set in Money, Mississippi. And it's kind of riffing off of um, the Emmett Till murders. But expanding that a little, um, I'm only about a third of the way into it, but it's pretty fascinating. I'd recommend the first third for sure. Mm. Um, I assume if it's like anything else, the first one ever, ever it has written, it's pretty great throughout. Okay. <laughs> Nathaniel, what are you reading? What are your recommendations? Uh, I've got two recommendations, but they're not nearly as heady or intellectual as y'all's. I've been watching, I've been watching the new AMC TV series interview with the vampire. Oh, I didn't yeah, even know as that of recordings. Oh yeah, as of recording, they're gonna be dropping the fourth episode like today or tomorrow. And uh it is good, really good. They basically do the Hannibal thing where they take the source material and they sort of disassemble it and then reconfigure it in new ways so that it's faithful in some ways to the source material or what I imagine the source material to be, because I've not read the books, I've seen the movie. But in other ways, it's radically different. So this one is set in the 19 teens and 20s. Louis is a black man in New Orleans, and Lestat is actually has a French accent, unlike Tom Cruise. It's just really good, and it's decadent, and it's gothic, and it's twisted, and I love it. I I don't think I've loved a movie this much, a, a TV series this much since Hannibal, or at least in this way since Hannibal. So I really highly recommend it. The other thing I'm reading is a horror novel by a, a writer named Gretchen Felker Martin called Manhunt. And this is a novel set in a in a world, the not too distant future, where there has been a plague that targets everyone with a certain amount of testosterone in their system. And it turns them into cancer-ridden, 
flesh-eating zombies. And the novel follows these two trans women who hunt down men, kill them, take out their balls, and Mm. then use the balls to synthesize estrogen. The novel's about a conflict between these women and roving bands of of trans-exclusionary rad feminists who want to destroy them because they see them as a threat. Okay, I have a question. Like, And I am not by any means opposed to this piece you're talking about. What about estrogen with that wouldn't that be testosterone or is there a bunch of estrogen in the balls no yeah apparently apparently men's testicles does produce a certain amount of estrogen and you can extract it from the from the testicles uh, i listened to gretchen felker martin on a podcast and she said that that's actually scientifically solid oh so okay. well so, yeah. okay that that's what um, i was like well I was... so yeah well it's, all right it's... then I, I will say this about this novel. I don't get nightmares a lot, and I certainly don't get nightmares from stuff I read. This novel gave me nightmares. Uh, it's yeah, well, fantastic. that's like not a recommendation. <laughs> it is a recommendation for a I horror don't, novel. <laughs> don't want nightmares. So, yeah, that's what I got. Thanks. So, yeah. Thanks, y'all. Um, what are we doing next time? Next time, we're going to do a special Christmas episode. We're going to be reading... A Christmas Carol and talking about adaptations of it. So like Muppet Christmas Carol, Scrooged, the Jim Carrey. Oh, there's a new one that has like Will Ferrell and somebody else in it. Yeah, I saw that the um, other day. There was also Mickey's Christmas Carol, but I don't know that okay. I want to give Disney the airspace. We will, um, we will, we will. Yeah, absolutely will. But but that's gonna be like sort of a, a special episode and it's gonna be the end of the season. Yeah. Yep. Yep. After that, um, we're going to take a break and we'll come back with a new season next year sometime. Yeah. A new season on mysteries, detective fiction, mysteries. Fiction. Yeah. So this is a good one to kind of kick it forward with. Will, yeah. we really appreciate you joining us for this. Yeah. yeah thanks, thanks for having man. Me. This has been fun. And thanks for suggesting this book. I would never have read it if it had <laughs> not been for you suggesting it for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, that's all for today. We'll see you next time here at the Projectionist Lending Library. Bye. Bye. That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next time. Meanwhile, you can email us at projectionistlendinglibrary at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at podcast or on Instagram at PLL Podcast. Our cover art is by Kit. You can find them on Instagram at Designed by Kit. The music is Rhapsody in Blue, which is freely available on the Internet Archive. Have a good one.